there's an old preacher joke about a guy who was trying to figure out God's leading for his life. And so he said, I know what I'll do. I will just open the Bible, and the first thing I read, that'll give me wisdom, God's wisdom for my life. So he opens the Bible to Matthew 27, verse 5, and it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. I thought, well, that can't be God's will for my life. I, I better look a different place. So he tries again. This time, puts his finger down, Luke 10, 37. Jesus told him, go and do thou likewise. Guy said, oh man, 0 for 2, that doesn't make sense at all. I'm going to try one more time. Tries one more time. Puts his finger down, John 13, 37. And whatever you do, do so quickly. Uh, old joke, you've probably heard it a million times, but it makes the point. We need to be careful in the way that we read the Bible, or it's really easy to make it say what God never intended it to say. So we come to 2 Timothy 2, 15, where we began last time. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How can you accurately handle the word of truth in your personal Bible study and in your small groups? Really important. It's not just good enough to, for us to say, what do we feel this says or what do we want this to say? But it's important for us to try to understand what does God intend to say? Accurately handling God's word in a way that he would approve of, you see. And so the first thing we said was um, appreciate the genre. Is it a law? What kind of law? Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it New Testament? Is it gospel? Is it a letter? What is the genre? Second, we said, handle it like grammar. One of the mistakes that people make with the Bible is they don't treat it like a piece of literature. The Bible is true in what it intends to say, but it's not true in what people may want to say that it says. And one of the ways they get, they get messed up is they don't, practice basic grammar um, uh, 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 rules to understand it. Third, let the scripture interpret the scripture. Always let scripture interpret scripture. We've hinted on this so far, but let me explain it a little bit more. Um, so we talk about David having 11 wives. How do we know it was wrong for David to have 11 wives? Well, it doesn't give us a commentary. I really wish that in the parenthesis there somewhere it would say, and God really was not happy that David had seven wives or 11 wives or whatever it was. But we can look at the context of the rest of scripture. Genesis 20, Genesis 2, 24 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. In the New Testament the Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, Two says because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. First Timothy 2, 3, as it describes the kind of widows that the church should be helping. Um, uh, actually, this, as First Timothy 5, 9 says a widow should be one put on the list only if she has had not is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man meaning a one-woman wife. None mean like if she had been married twice because her previous husband died, but, but meaning a one-woman woman, a one-man woman. I mean, that she's only had one, uh, she's not been a polygamist. Um, first Timothy 3, 2, the same idea for the elder. An overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man. Um, 
So if we let the scripture interpret the scripture, it clarifies our, our questions. Now, there's a lot of confusion about things like belief and obedience, for instance. Acts chapter 2, 38, the Bible says that when, when the people ask, what do we need to do to be saved? The disciples say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Some people today object. Well, but Ephesians 3, 8 says that it's by grace that you're saved through faith and not of yourself. It's the gift of God, the result of work, so that no one would boast. And they will argue, if you ask people to be baptized, that's a work. And you're not believing that you're saved by faith. You're believing you're saved by belief and, you know, a work or something like that. But read the best rest of the Bible, and it makes it clear that that something like baptism is not separated from belief. It's consistent with belief. I was reading Hebrews 3 recently, for instance, where it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, um, uh, led by Moses, and with whom uh, was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter his rest. Why? Because of unbelief. See, over and over in the New Testament, we see belief and obedience are hand in hand. They, they didn't go into the promised land because they disobeyed, but it wasn't just the disobedience. It wasn't just the action. It was the heart, which was unbelief. And so when Peter says to, the, to people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, that's not separated from belief. It's not believe um, and then baptism is like a work of that. No, no, no. Belie baptism is an expression of belief. Unbelief is expressed in disobedience, in other words. So we are saved by grace through faith. Getting dunked never saves anybody. The blood of Jesus does. The grace of Jesus does. But you can't separate belief and baptism. Baptism is the expression of belief, not a work that saves us. So know the genre, practice good grammar, let scripture interpret scripture. Next, consider the context, the entire context. Recently, my Bible reading took me to the book of Ezekiel. And as I was doing this, I, there was part of me that was just attempted to dive right into Ezekiel and start reading it. And then I thought, you know, I'll get more out of it if I just take a second and, uh, and try to remember what the context is for Ezekiel. So I thought, okay, what's the Bible context? Well, Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. You know, so I know that he's writing before Jesus comes to earth. I know that he's writing in, in a time of where everything is preparing. God is preparing the world for the Messiah. All that has come, all that is, is, is happening is preparation for the Messiah to come. I know the Old Testament, in the Old Testament context, that Ezekiel is a prophet of God. I know in the time context that the situation is the people of Israel 
are in exile. The northern kingdom has been uh, taken into exile as a result of the Assyrians. But Ezekiel himself comes on the scene about four years after Nebuchadnezzar has deported a first group of people from Jerusalem and taken them into Babylon. Um, a few years um, later, a few years after Ezekiel starts to write, Jerusalem itself will completely fall. So um, the people of Judah now are in, are in rebellion against God. That's the context of the time. The purpose context for Ezekiel, he's a prophet of God warning the people of what's going to happen. It's a time of confusion where the people are wondering, has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Is there any hope for us? His purpose is to call the people to repent, to let them know what's going to happen. Babylon is going to take you. You are going to be in captivity for so many years. He's also then reminding them of God's glory, that God is in control and that he will one day return them home. Ezekiel is filled with great stuff, but it really helps to understand all the context. Ezekiel 3 is a great example. Verse 17, son of man, which is a phrase that God uses speaking to Ezekiel. I have appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. Wherever, whenever you hear a, a word from my mouth, warn them from me. And when I say to the wicked, you will certainly die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from the wicked way that, they, that, they, uh, may, that he may live. That wicked person shall die for wrongdoing, but his blood will, I will require of your hand. However, if you warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways, he shall die for his wrongdoing, but you will have saved yourself. Again, verse 20, when the righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits sin and I place an obstacle before him, he will die since you have not warned him. He shall die in his sin and his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require from your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous person, that righteous person is not to sin and he does sin. He shall certainly live because he took warning and you have saved yourself. See, in context, that makes all kinds of sense. God is calling Ezekiel to be the watchman for Israel. And we can see how that can apply to us as well. Now, God is saying to you and me, we need to take responsibility to warn people with God's word that he gives us and obey him too. Now, one of the mistakes that people make sometimes in reading the Bible is that they ignore the context and jump to wrong conclusions. Luke 12 is a great example. You know, when um, Jesus says, when they bring you before synagogues and officials and authorities, do not worry about what you will speak in your defense for you are to say, uh, or what you are to say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, out of context, that kind of sounds like, oh, I don't have to study. You know, God is going to just going to tell me what to say all the time. Well, it is true that when we find ourselves in positions and in obedience to God, I do believe that he guides us, but I do believe that he honors our preparation. I do believe that he guides us, but I don't think that's an excuse for us not to study. In fact, 2 Timothy 
2, 15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Someone doesn't need to be shamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. In other words, know the word of truth. Know the scriptures so that when the time comes, you'll be ready. And then God, the Holy Spirit enhances that. Um, but we need to study. But if we are, you know, um, if we're not careful, we can proof text things and, 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 um, and, uh, and make them say what God does not intend to say. Know the genre, practice good grammar, let scripture interpret scripture, understand the context, and then finally apply the passage personally. One of the mistakes that people make is they want to apply the passage personally without going through the first steps of understanding the genre, practicing the good grammar, interpreting scripture according to scripture, and understanding the context. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is a classic example. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, there's a lazy part of me that just wants to say, oh, that's all about me. God has plans for my future. And he does. That's true. But if I really want to understand this, I need to read this as literature. What is it? It's prophecy. Who's the prophet? Jeremiah. Who's he speaking to? The people of Israel in captivity. What's God saying? God's promising them, I have plans for, they're wondering while they're in captivity in, in Babylon, is God done with us? Is there no hope for us? Or we're no longer going to be a nation. Is God not going to bring the Messiah through us anymore? And God is saying to them, no, don't lose hope. I have plans for you, plans for hope and a future. You know, if you will follow me and I will bring my Messiah through you, I will keep my promises. Now, is that a promise to us? Yeah, in a secondary kind of way. But we have to appreciate the first promise, the first intention, so we can then say, oh, God has made promises to us. What are his promises to us? He's promised to forgive our sins. He's promised that Jesus is coming back again. He's promised that he is faithful and true and will not abandon us in our difficult times, that we have hope always, but our meaning comes from understanding the original meaning, not from just projecting what we want it to say, uh, projecting into it. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It is powerful. We need to treat it with the power that it has, respecting its power. So be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.15, accurately handling the word of truth. Know the genre, practice good grammar, let scripture interpret scripture, understand the larger context, and finally, then apply the passage personally. God, we want to be approved by you. We want you to speak to us through your word. We don't want to be making stuff up. We don't want to be deceived by people who will take stuff out of context and distort it and, uh, and, and maybe cause us to believe something that you're not saying. Um, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. Help us to honor you by honoring it. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Hope that was helpful. A little geeky probably. Hope you'll hope to see you soon.